Jody Vance in for Jill this week. You know, it feels both like yesterday and forever ago, April 14th, 2016. That's when the overdose public health emergency was first declared by then provincial health officer, Dr. Perry Kendall. The first time the provincial health officer actually exercised em- those emergency powers that we've become so familiar with here under the Public Health Act and made BC the first province to take that kind of action in response to deaths due to illicit drug toxicity. Now, Moving toward decriminalization, small possession, step one, and the process is ongoing. Uh, Increasing access to safe supply, also ongoing process. Helping in recovery from addiction, putting uh, beds in place, available treatment in place. And in the meantime, thousands of lives lost, 7,072 over five years, 7,072 people and growing. Not a crisis of the homeless. This is... (laughs) This is a crisis for for everyone everywhere. And you've likely heard the stat that 60, 60% of all overdose deaths take place in private homes, not on the streets. So time to get immediate advice on how to survive this as we try and solve the root of the problem. If you or someone you love is using, you should listen here. We welcome Troy Clifford, the president of the Ambulance Paramedics Union and an active paramedic himself. Troy Clifford is on the line. Thank you so much for doing this. And please, may I thank you and your colleagues for your service. That's excellent, Jody. Thank you for having us on. And um, yes, uh, we appreciate that. We're always uh, keen to hear our support and and for an opportunity to talk about a a serious thing like uh, what we're facing right now. Being on the front lines here, I can't even imagine what it is like to be a, a, a paramedic, to, to be in an ambulance in a pandemic and having to help people in this vulnerable uh, scenario that is so life threatening. Can you give us an idea of what a day in the life is like for you, Troy? For sure. And you know what? We're, we're, we're talking a five year anniversary from the declaration, but this has been a society issue a lot longer before it was officially declared five years ago. And, you know, yeah. we're talking about an an- anniversary today, but it's not a celebration in what we traditionally see as it. I've been trying to portray that. You know, it's a somber anniversary, and it's really an opportunity to have this conversation and talk about the impact on those families and the lives that are lost. And, you know, and you mentioned paramedics and dispatchers, what we're facing every day on top of, you know, the COVID fatigue, all these other things in our staffing and workload and the impacts on paramedics and dispatchers wellness. But, you know, that, that's overshadow or that doesn't overshadow the impacts on what you were talking about, that this is not a, a downtown East side issue. This is a society across the province issue that we're seeing. Uh, You mentioned 7,072 times five years, but we're seeing up to five a day in every corner of this province and it's tough it's really tough to see when you respond to a parent when a paramedic responds to a call or a dispatcher takes a call when uh you know whether it's a a young kid experimenting or whether it's uh somebody that's become addicted through mental health or other challenges that got them into a, a bad situation they're all human beings and that's what paramedics are really about is helping people and we don't judge and so it it does take its toll on paramedics. There's no question when you go to a call and somebody's not breathing and people are, are trying to do their best to help, it's a chaotic situation in a lot of cases. I can only imagine. One can only imagine. And that, therefore, you know, obviously, thank you for your service and your dedication to this. We listened to Dr. Henry and her colleagues uh, referencing, as you did, it, this is about having the conversation and talking it through and saying don't use alone and understanding that a tainted drug supply, as we have right now, 
a single experiment could prove fatal. So why don't you give some life-saving tips for people who are in the grips of, of needing, needing that drug and are going to use again? What need, do they need to know to use safely? I think that's the key thing is we're about um, prevention and, and safe supplies. We know that the supplies are not safe. Um, and so people are going to, if they're going to use, for whatever their situation is, we ask that they don't use alone. Make sure somebody's with you. Because yeah. what happens is your respiratory, when you, when you stop breathing because of an opiate overdose, you need somebody to assist with breathing or, or inject uh, naloxone, which is the medication that quickly reverses the effects of an overdose from opiates. And, you know, kits are easily accessible without prescriptions. And just knowing what to do in those yeah, emergency situations. They're free, situations, right? They're free in yeah, your, oh, your pharmacy. You can train online. I've done the training online. I mean, it, it's empowering. Yeah, and you know what? And we encourage everybody to be aware, just like we encourage education and awareness of CPR or respiratory breathing, because that's what's going to save lives. Um, the other thing that are that great is the uh, lifeguard application that's out right now. Everybody has phones for the most part. You can download the application, and it, uh, you know it'll connect to nine one one automatically, and it'll guide you through an unexpected overdose. The other thing is use safely in a safe situation, not yeah. just alone, but go to a harm reduction site. There's evidence that shows that it's safer and overdoses are, you know, in a supervised situation, whether that's with a friend or whether that's in a harm reduction site. So there's evidence that those are, are, are best practices. Don't use in public places where you'll have access to or potentially put children or, or public at risk. Yeah. You know, we don't want needles in parks and, 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 you know, there's safe ways that we can protect others. Um, and then really reach out and get help when you can, um, you know, and that's where we can help in the communities with support. We have our community paramedic program. We can refer people and educate. And that's really what the conversation is about. Um, yeah. You know, there's hire people than us that can figure out the policies and, and the conversations around what's best from a policy perspective. And, but really it's about safe usage, prevention, recovery and treatment. And, and those are the, the focuses for paramedics. We, we don't judge. We're out there really just trying to do our best to help people and guide them and make sure that they're safe as we can make it for them in their whatever reason that they've gotten themselves into a situation or not. Uh, their time of need. Troy, you know what? Yeah. I'm up against the clock here, but boy, <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time and laying it out. You've set the table perfectly to save lives. And thank you for all you do and for taking some time for us today. Thank you. And thank you for everybody's support through this. Uh, what we're all seeing in tough times, the general health paramedic and dispatcher, we're all facing some real challenges right now. And we just thank the public for their support and patience with us as we uh, try to do our best for everybody. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. You know, it's one thing to cover the addiction crisis, the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis. It's an entirely different world when you have lived experience. Our next guest has just that. Guy Felicella is a peer clinical advisor at the BC Centre on Substance Use, Substance Use. Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jody. So what's it like for you on the day? I mean, it seems, you know, once a month, we seem to call on people with your expertise to talk us through uh, horrifying numbers. And, and particularly on this day, the five-year anniversary of the state of emergency, the provincial health officer uh, called the state of emergency on April 14th, 2016, uh, 
have our policies changed in your perspective enough or are we moving in a, in a better direction at all five years later and more than 7,000 British Columbians uh, dead over that time? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, it's tough day. Like, you know, traumatizing. It's just heartbreaking that uh, once a month we continue to hear the the same sadness and more lives lost from, you know, and these deaths are preventable. And then, you know, today makes it, uh, you know, extremely a, a tough day. I, I mean, you know, it's a day of grieving, uh, yeah. you know, so it's, it's one of those things too. It also brings into, um, you know, this has not just been going on the last five years. Sure. There's a public health emergency in the last five years, but I, I'd also like to recall the first public health emergency where HIV, AIDS, and the overdose crisis in the 90s uh, were in place. And, you know, I had, to, I had to survive through that where one in four were infected in the downtown east side of, of AIDS. And I've watched many drug users not just die of drug overdoses, but also die of AIDS in the 90s. And then today with COVID and the overdose crisis, uh, battling each other out. I see the eerie, familiar similarities of both crises, and one gets all the attention and the other one doesn't. Oh, that's chilling. It it does bring great perspective here, Guy. And for people who don't know your story, could you share a little bit of what uh, makes you a peer clinical advisor at BC Centre on Substance Use? You've walked this walk. Yeah, I mean, I lived in the, you know, the downtown east side pretty much, uh, you know, started venturing in here as a youth uh, in the 80s and really fell in here in the 90s, uh, early 90s and stayed until 2003 where I was, you know, homeless for decades, suffered, you know, osteomyelitis, bone infections um, and brought back to life six times and, you know, just through immense challenges and just to survive the punishment, the criminalization, the stigmatization that drug users face and then battle through all that and survive that. And then, you know, leave the downtown East side with one set of clothes on his back to try and, you know, rebuild his life. We, they don't make it easy on people to, 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 to get support and get help. So it's the extremely, uh, you know, one hell of a, one hell of a ride for sure. It's interesting. I follow you on social media and I love your pinned tweet. It is so full of hope. Um, clearly, you have an outstanding reality and yet you still give back so uh, viscerally to the community that is is marginalized and ostracized and 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 really put in, in in sort of this polarizing position where people are are angry at harm reduction sites. Like I've never really understood that it, as an individual. I've never understood people being mad about helping uh, reduce harm. I mean, it's literally in the verbiage of why you would have, you know, safe injection sites or needle exchange or drug testing opportunities, all life-saving possible moments to interact. And we heard Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer at the uh, press briefing earlier today, um, basically making that statement that she often does, that the opposite of addiction is connection and compassion. Are we seeing a move toward compassion or is that getting worse? Are we seeing those harm reduction sites being celebrated more or is it getting ever more difficult? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. 
I think it's I think it's moving a you know it is moving uh, you know a lot of people do support harm reduction and uh, you, you know in Vancouver yes in other areas in other communities it's a lot harder it uh, reminds me sometimes in communities that I go in and speak like we're back in the 90s and and to me it's just you know trying to educate the public that these um, these facilities not only save lives, they give them the ability to change lives, improve the quality of people's lives. And it's a health issue and, and we need to treat it as one. And you know, what's, what's, uh, what's beautiful is right now, as we're talking, I'm coming to you from a back alley in the downtown East side, just on a, on a day of the, the fifth year anniversary, uh, you know, in the community doing uh, vaccine rollouts. Uh, trying to get the community vaccinated for anybody that wants it. So it's a, it's a humbling journey for me, especially. And, and, you know, one of, uh, of many ways that I try to give back to the community that uh, basically protected me and saved my life um, for, for decades down here. And so truly grateful for that. What a story you have to tell. We're with Guy Felicella, who is a peer clinical advisor at the BC Centre on Substance Use, among other hats he wears. I think you said you work for three different organizations trying to give back, trying to connect with people, trying to have compassion for the people who need it so much. If someone's listening right now, somebody who doesn't live on the downtown east side but is struggling with addiction, who is embarrassed or shameful in that um, stumble in their life and, and feel that they cannot reach out, what advice would you give to them? What, what's the first action one must take to uh, get on a path to, to wellness and, and that connectivity that you found in your life? You know, you know, the hardest step is just the first one. It's just that it's having the ability to just pick up the phone and tell someone you're struggling. And, you know, if, for a long time, that was the, the hardest thing for, for, for me to do because I, I felt so much shame because of how society projects its views onto people who use drugs. And heck, you know, my website, guyfellachella.com, if you're struggling, you can reach out there. I'll call you back and I'll do whatever I can to help you in any community across the province, actually across the country. I don't care where you are. I know what it's like. You're not alone. I'll do what I can to help. Guyfellachella.com. What a great initiative for you to, to take on. I thank you for your time today on, on what is a very busy day and for all that you do. Thanks, Jody. Have a great day. Hey there, Jody Vanson for Jill this week. If you're trying to keep up to speed on how the COVID-19 pandemic is hitting, not just here in BC or even nationally across Canada, but really globally, you want to know what's happening on the planet you should be following the social media feed of our next guest. He's a former colleague right here at CKNW, now residing in Denmark. I'm speaking about, of course, a familiar name to you. Freelance journalist Shane Woodford is on the line. Hey, Shane, thanks for uh, working late for us today. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Jody. Great to hear your voice. I'm glad to talk with you. Of course, I'm following along on your Twitter feed. You keep us up to date on really so many locales, but today I really want to speak to you specifically about what is happening in Denmark with regard to AstraZeneca as part of their vaccine rollout. Can you set the table for us? Yeah, back on March 11th, uh, Denmark pressed pause and AstraZeneca put doses on the shelf back in the freezer um, after a couple of cases of rare side effects. Uh, blood clotting gets kind of the spotlight here, Jody, but it's a little more complex than that. It's um, blood, it's a combination of blood clotting in unusual places and then conversely blood not clotting where it should, so uh, bleeding in places 
and then low blood platelet count, which can be in has been uh, in some cases here in Europe and in one case specifically in Denmark, uh, been very fatal. So that array of rare side effects began popping up in Denmark, in Germany, uh, Norway, France, Italy, uh, and it kind of spread from there. And Denmark decided that was it, that they were going to press pause in this thing. And then today they held a press conference. And quite frankly, I was a little surprised with the direction it took. I was sort of anticipating um, uh, a restart of the AstraZeneca vaccination with some rules about who exactly could have it. But today... Uh, they came out and they said that uh, combined with uh, the Norwegian Health Institute uh, and uh, the Denmark's National Health Board that they have done a deep dive into uh, the AstraZeneca vaccination side effects and determined that the risk is actually a lot more uh, real than they initially thought. Uh, The figure they used today is the risk of rare side effects is 1 in 40,000 vaccinated. And Denmark decided that uh, that was enough for them, and they have kicked AstraZeneca to the curb. They have wiped it off the vaccination schedule. They will not be using it anymore. Okay, so Shane, so people who got the first dose of AstraZeneca, what happens to them now? Yeah, that is a bit of a question. There's 149,000 people in Denmark who've had a first AstraZeneca dose. Um, I'm a little unclear on how that's going forward. The only thing we know for now is that, uh, according to the National Health Institute here, that sometime, quote-unquote, later, they will be offered another vaccine. What's unclear is, uh, because the science on sort of switching doses from one to the other is super unclear, the World Health, the World Health Organization, Joey, just came out within the last few days and said that there is no scientific evidence to back up the ability to have a first dose of one vaccine and a second of another and still have any kind of efficacy against uh, the coronavirus. So, uh, what I'm unclear on is when they say they're going to be offered another vaccine later, do they mean a second dose of another vaccine thinking that will do? Or whether the 149,000 people in Denmark who've had a first dose will sort of um, somehow have to restart with another vaccine. I'm not sure how that would work, but that is a bit of a question mark right now. Now, is there anything, and you're not a physician, obviously, we're with Shane Woodford, who's a freelance journalist, formerly here at CKNW, now based in Denmark. Denmark is the country that has, as you said, kicked AstraZeneca to the curb for the time being uh, because of some of the reported side effects and the numbers being very different than what we're hearing here. You know, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry here has said, you know, very rare uh, instances of these side effects and these side effects are treatable. Uh, if caught, uh, certainly there have been a couple of tragic deaths, um, but that yes, as, as recently as yesterday, it was like, this is one in a million. Now it's one in 40,000 in Denmark. That That's a significant jump and bump in, in what we're learning yeah. today. What about Johnson & Johnson? Similar issues in the United States with, with the J&J single dose vaccine and having uh, clots related to that. Are, are these two similar in any way in, in the reactions? Do we know? Yeah, so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine picture here in Europe is a little more complicated. The uh, European Union um, granted that particular vaccine a green light uh, about a month ago. But however, no doses uh, as of yesterday had arrived in Europe. They were supposed to arrive this week, and then we would begin Johnson & Johnson vaccine doses. So the news of what happened in the United States uh, was the worst possible timing from a European yeah. perspective because they were banking on having another wave of a fresh vaccine finally arrive after a month delay from being approved. Yeah. Uh, so what's happened here, Jody, is uh, immediately after the situation in the United States with six cases of, of blood clotting after vaccination, 
Johnson & Johnson has suspended its European rollout of the vaccine, although there were already some doses apparently uh, en route because Denmark received 38,000 doses this morning, which was something of a surprise. They weren't expecting them until next week. So uh, in the case of Denmark and any other country in Europe that has received doses, uh, those will be put into the freezer until the European Medicines Agency does a safety review based on the cases out of the United States. And we're told uh, as of a couple hours ago uh, that the EMA will clarify their position on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as of next week. It's a good idea to remind everybody that all of these vaccines are on emergency use right now. And the, the fact yeah. that things are getting flagged the way they are means the system is working. Uh, everybody is yeah. paying astute and acute attention to what is happening here with the rollout of all of these vaccines. Um, it's it's really quite, as you said, it's unfortunate timing because w vaccine uptake, like people being fearful of all vaccines suddenly because of some of these side effects. One last question for you with regard to what's happening in Denmark, yep. Shane. Is it primarily women? Yeah, it's uh, that's a bit of a double-sided coin, too. So the, the EMA has really said, listen, we can't say that a specific risk group is this. But uh, today in Denmark, um, one of the health officials that was speaking, uh, the head of the Danish Medicines Agency, Tanya Lund Eriksson, um, basically said, yeah, we can't specifically say this group is at risk, but I can tell you that it doesn't take too much investigation to kind of figure out uh, that it's women under the age of 60 that are generally coming down with this. And it's interesting too, Jody, because in stopping the AstraZeneca vaccine here in Denmark, that has not been the call uh, in other European countries, not the call in Sweden, uh, not the call in Finland. Uh, mm -hmm. What those countries have done is in order to accelerate the vaccination program, uh, they have chosen to restrict vaccine use of the AstraZeneca vaccine to those over the age of 60. And therefore, you're out of the danger zone because um, every single case of these rare side effects has been somebody under the age of 60. As we just talked about, most of them, almost all of them, in fact, have been women. Great intel, as always, Shane Woodford. I appreciate you taking some time for us today uh, so much. Thanks for doing this. Anytime you call, I'm there. You stay safe. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Third wave surging COVID-19 cases, the race to vaccinate, public health orders, closures, restrictions, hopefully all helping to bring new case numbers and that curve down a little bit. Every day we wait anxiously for the numbers from Dr. Bonnie Henry. It was a bit of good news yesterday. Uh, you know, numbers not going up is good news. I can't believe we're saying that it's good news when we're talking numbers in the 800s, but here we are. Today is a release, just as a as a programming note for you. Uh, it'll be a release, and you'll hear the numbers the, the second that we get them for you here on CKNW. They are released around 3 o'clock, so be tuned into the Linda Steele Show for that. Tomorrow, Dr. Henry is presenting new modeling at 3 p.m. and likely updating those health orders. Uh, some of the health orders that you may or may not know are slated to end this Friday, April 19th, but will they? To talk through the restaurant piece of this puzzle, we connect with good friend of the program, the one and only Ian Tostenson, the president mm -hmm. of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Always love to speak with you, as you know, uh, Ian. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Jody. Always. And, and great to hear your voice this week. So tell me, um, you know, uh, saw you on Global News this morning speaking to the fact that, you know, stakeholders at the highest level were meeting with our provincial health officer about restrictions and uh, how restaurants are being impacted right now and, and what things might look like moving forward. Can you give us an update? 
So we saw the Friday's coming, and we, we thought, are we going to actually wait till Thursday and then hear that we're not going to be able to extend uh, or, or not to reopen dining rooms? So we got a hold of Dr. Henry, and we had the best conversation. There was three industry associations uh, at that meeting, ourselves, Able Restaurants Canada, Dr. Emerson, and Dr. Um, Dr. Henry, and that was yesterday afternoon. And we said, let's just let's just kind of work on this. We don't want to be sitting on the edge of our seats on Thursday. Will we or won't we? It's quite clear by the numbers that we're not. I mean, there's no way, at a, you know, anywhere from 800 to 1,200 uh, transmissions a day. We are seeing uh, issues with uh, people that work in the industry. We're not seeing any issues in restaurants, but we're seeing people that are working and their friends and their friends are living at home. And it's a problem for Dr. Henry. And we had the most amazing, honest, straightforward conversation. And we said, let's make the call today. And she said, I'm happy with that. The, she said, um, you guys make the call. You put it out. I'm going to do my numbers on Thursday. And this will likely go through to as long as the May long weekend. And then we talked about the implications of that. And, on you know, Jody, she has got a heart and soul, Dr. Henry, like I've never seen. Like I, we see her, you know, on her press conferences, but she truly was so proud of this industry and telling her colleagues in Canada, she said, I'm really sad about having to close restaurants in store dining because I was able to tell my colleagues in Canada how proud I was of our industry to stay open this long because no one else was able to do that. But the facts are, unless we all contribute now in this last four, I'm going to say four to six week push as we catch up with vaccinations or get vaccinations going by the time Dr. Henry's words, by the time June comes along, almost every adult in this province will have a vaccination. And that's a game changer for us. And I predict, Jody, that you and I will probably never have a conversation about their industry closing again after the May long weekend. It's going to be, we're going to be on the way back. That just gives me goosebumps. And for so many who rely on the service industry, who rely, you saw saw my column in the Orca. I cannot imagine. I'm a longtime hostess, server, waitress, cook. I was a prep at Earl's, man. I've lived the industry and I don't know what I would do if my livelihood was challenged in the way restaurants have been challenged over the last uh, 15 months now and, and surviving and pulling together in a way that is, is unbelievable. And here we are, we're, we're almost there. And to protect everybody yeah. just, just a little bit more. I love the fact that you were proactive as you always are. I mean, come on, you're Ian mm-hmm. Tostenson, but you're so proactive in this and having this conversation, identifying that Dr. Henry is really spinning so many plates simultaneously trying to save the lives of British Columbians here and and getting ahead of it like this because I remember your frustration in the first time restaurants were closed because everybody I mean New Year's Eve everybody had had stocked up you know and at the last you know the 11th hour it's like oh no actually everything's got to shut down as of eight o'clock tonight or whatever and it was just like oh you know, now restaurateurs are losing all of their inventory and the staff is caught off guard and hasn't been able to make preparation. At least now people can go, okay, I know what's happening. Yeah, right. For four to five weeks. And, you know, the, the tears are, I mean, the tears are the same thing. Like it's the, it's the tears, the business owner that's, that has nothing left in the gas tank. It's the yeah. people who work in the industry. They're going, how do I pay my rent? I mean, I have no shifts now. So by doing this and setting a goal, and, and the other thing that was really positive about this 
we said, why don't we say this? If we can get these numbers and really work hard together, and we'll message us through the media and the public who are our best friends in our business to do the best we can right now. Maybe we can, she said, maybe we can open sooner. She said, I would love that. And that was such a heartwarming message because she does have her back. We have her back. And, and now, as you just pointed out, Jody, we are down to the final wire here. Thanks for hanging out with us, Jody Vanson, for Jill this week. Got to connect now with our producer of this program, Ben Dooley, also doing the work from home thing. So, Ben, I'm just checking you're on the line. There you are. I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. This is great. Okay, so let's let's set the table here before we connect with our, our good friend, holistic nutritionist, uh, Alyssa Bowman of Nourish.ca, the she of the Veg, veg Up Your Life. Um, no restrictions, Alyssa, I like to call her because she is very <laughs> open to all things. So, Alyssa, I want you to hear what Ben has to say here because I was on Twitter, uh, I guess it was just, was it yesterday or the day before? On Twitter, I'm rolling through and I see, Ben, you tweeted and I'm quoting, I had my first plant-based burger tonight and I might never go back to having meat. Explain. So uh, one of the things that I'm doing during the pandemic, you know, every day feel, kind of feels like Groundhog Day. So one of the things that I'm, I'm doing is uh, try, trying new food. And so the other night I decided to try a plant-based uh, burger for the first time, you know, a, a mere... Uh, Ali, one of our uh, colleagues here, is uh, a, a huge vegan, and, and he's all into the the, the plant-based uh, burgers. And so I I decided to to give one a try to to see what the the fuss is all about. And uh, and you know what? It it was really good. I mean, <laughs> I, I I could tell that I wasn't having you know a meat burger, but that wasn't a bad thing. I thought that it was uh, better than meat. So you got to tell me where where did you go and give me like the top chef uh, breakdown of of flavor and 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 what made it great. Uh, so I I went to, to Burger King actually. Uh, they uh, had the new Impossible Whopper. It's called. Uh, uh, and Monday was the the first day that uh, that um, it uh, it's in Canada. I guess they they tried it out in the states for a while and now it now it's here in canada and uh and it was just a, an interesting flavor it it's the same kind of texture as meat but there's a little extra uh, well i guess i guess it's the the plant taste that that makes it different and it, it's a u- unique flavor that, that i really enjoyed i'm gonna say it's umami that's what I'm going to say, because your tweet was, it's the new Impossible Whopper at Burger King, and anyone who says it tastes like meat is lying. It tastes better. And I love that. And thank you, Ben. I'm going to bring Alyssa in. I should have had Amir Ali join us for this conversation, because Alyssa, this was the jumping off point. This is how it works behind the scenes, is Ben and I, I'm like, hey, if this is a conversation we're having, we should have this on the radio. Because you, I love you, it. You speak all the time of vegging up your life, right? Green, mm-hmm. add the greens. You don't need to remove every bit of meat. You choose to go almost completely vegetarian, if not vegan, meatless. Mm-hmm. But there are people in your family whose first request is burger me, mom, right? 100%. 100%. So there's a, there's <laughs> a middle ground here. I do. Here's I do. It. I live it. I love it. Yeah, but Amir Ali, who we mentioned there, and I know you know Amir as well, who is full vegan, but not militant about it. He wants to inform. He wants to, to, to help, you know, shed some light on other opportunities of, of what you can put into your diet. And you're so good at helping out with that. I mean, you make tacos look like beef tacos, but there's what, what are they? They're walnuts? No, 
Is that, is it a walnut now you're taco? talking about my walnut ground beef. Yeah, so yes. I make ground beef out of walnut, cumin, soy sauce, and a little bit of water. And you know what? The texture's there, and the flavor's there, and I'm getting omega-3 essential fatty acids, heart-healthy fats um, from the walnuts instead of, you know, saturated fat from the meat. Right, and a boatload of protein to boot. So it's and not that you can't... It's not that you can't eat meat. It's if you're choosing to sort of, you know, shift shift your focus a little and be sort of that medium of meat eater. You know, we're all trying to go meatless some days, I, I'm thinking. So moderation. We, I mean, right. it, it, unless, unless, you know, there's lots of, you know, the vegans out there, oh my goodness, great for you guys for doing so much activism work as well because we all want a better planet, right? And yeah. scientifically, we know eating meat is not good for the planet at all. So... If you could just, you know, set the intention to be like, you know what, I'm just not going to have meat for one day, start with one day, start with one meal, actually. If you are a huge meat eater and you eat meat at every meal, first of all, we know the science, science says that that's not good for you, right? So from a health standpoint alone, how about we just try to, you know, crowd out the meat by adding in more vegetables or in, in Ben's case here, you know, the Impossible Burger or the, or the, the plant-based burgers, yeah. And and being having those available now, I, I've got a really good friend who would kill me if I said her name out loud on the radio, but she's definitely shifting because she's been, you know, like so many of us during COVID-19, going home and staying home. She's been watching. She's all the way to the end of the Internet, and she has found herself watching more and more documentaries about how food is cultivated, you know, mm-hmm. ethical farming versus not so ethical farming. And even in some countries, how the shrimp that you might buy at, at a very, very low price could be actually harvested by slave labor. Like we really need to follow where our I, food comes from. First of all, I love that. I love the more knowledge is power, right? So if you are connected to where your food is coming from and truly connected to it, like learning about it, researching about it, watching some of these documentaries, Mind you, a lot of these documentaries aren't all true, so you have to watch it with, you know, a very, you know, open-minded eye. Um, That's a good really point. Are, if we're they're all often connected. often created yeah. by a, an, an activist with an agenda that might be oh, not showing perhaps the whole picture. Is that what you're saying? A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm not going to name any documentaries, but there's a one right now that is very popular. Everybody's saying, "Have you seen it? Have you seen it?" It's about the ocean. Um, it's very one-sided. Oh. That's the one that she was talking about yesterday. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. It opens up our awareness. Uh, We become more involved with where our food is coming. And it is only positive things that we're getting from this because we're finally, you know, where, where's our fish coming from? It, It, we're trying, we're starting to understand that it's just not coming from the grocery store, but there's actually people and politics and policy and education behind everything that we eat. So if we just become more, you know, in tune to where our food comes from, hopefully just by, by ethics alone, we will naturally reduce our meat consumption and by naturally reducing our meat consumption. And I'm not saying take it away, right? As you said, I mean, I have a family of meat eaters, not saying take it away, but be more specific and more, more, um, you know, concerned about where it's coming from, then I think yeah. we will all be better off. The health of ourselves, the health of the planet. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. And I'm hanging out with my good friend, Alyssa Bowman, holistic nutritionist at nourished.ca, a great resource for you, especially if you're trying to sort of crowd the meat out of your diet. You're not wanting to go vegan, 
but you you maybe want to go down the pescatarian route with just a little bit of meat. You are you are you going vegetarian? But even vegan some days. I mean, just challenging yourself to just cook something cool that has no animal byproducts in it. I mean, that's something that I love to do. The chef in me is like, okay, how do I get that umami without putting anything in there that has an animal product in it? And then you you create something really, really cool. So if you've got an idea or you've got a question for Alyssa, now's your opportunity to talk it through with well, somebody who has literally gone to the Harvard of Holistic Nutrition, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. So Liz, I want to tap into your knowledge here on when people make the decision, sometimes it's an extreme decision. Deciding in Mm -hmm. a day to go vegan can also be like deciding in a day to go keto or deciding in a day to go fill in the blank extreme diet. Like how do you actually move towards something like that, mindful of the impacts that it might have on your body? Such a great question. And I get this question all the time. Definitely you don't want to do it. Okay, tomorrow I'm never eating meat again. It's the same thing as like I'm never drinking again or I'm never I'm quitting smoking right now. It's 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 all of those it's that mentality that kind of will you know, it will backfire in the end. Or I'm never gonna have a Nanaimo bar or forget the pizza. I'm never eating that again. It's the that is just gonna backfire. So I always ask my clients when I'm helping um, clients transition more towards a plant-based diet, what is the one animal product that you consume the most of? And for most people or for most people that I work with, it's cream and coffee. They can never give up the cream. They can't imagine having coffee without cream. And you know what? Ten years ago, I was that same person. And now I look back and I'm like, wow, I don't consume any uh, dairy products anymore. And it was a really easy transition. And I'll just tell you a homegrown COVID story right here that happened to me. You know, we're all working from home. My husband works from home now. And he was always a big cream guy in his coffee, always took his coffee with cream. So the cream, the glass cream uh, jars just kept collecting and collecting. And sooner or later, you know, by April of this year after COVID and him having a coffee, two coffees a day with cream, we had like milk containers, cream containers, like outside, just like 10, 15. So I said to him, like, do you realize how much cream you consume? Because most of the time, you don't even realize how much animal products you're consuming. It's just a habit. So what we did is very easy. Um, I found an oat-based milk that I've been using for a really long time, and I got a frother. And now, guess what? He has been off cream for over a year and doesn't miss it. We use an oat milk. You can use an almond milk. You can use a soy milk. Whatever, Whatever you like, you I hardly even notice a difference because I froth it in my, in my uh, frother and it tastes, it tastes great. So the first question is, what do you eat the most of? Right. And there are people, there are people who really want to push back on it and be like, don't tell me what to do. And you're not telling people what to do. I mean, I think that's the cool part about this. It's for people who are looking to make this transition. It's not, you're a bad person if you don't eat this way. And the extremism of the activism behind veganism can sometimes feel like a slap. I, and as I've told you, I'm not a vegan, but I, I know and love many vegans and I love to learn from people who replace meat or replace cream in, in creative ways. The phone lines are open 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Uh, let's go to Steve in Langley. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hi, how are you guys today? Good. How are you? Good. So, We've been converting to a a less meat-based diet for several years now at my wife's suggestion. And my main concern, I don't mind uh, changing out my proteins to something else. I hate 
fake meat. We have yeah. meat three or fake four what? Yeah, two, fake, two or three times a meat. week. Yeah. Fake yeah. meat. Just, Is that what, fake meat? Yes, yeah. he's saying fake, he doesn't like the meat. Beyond Meat stuff, right? Okay. Is that what yeah. you're saying, Steve? Yeah. Right, exactly. I, I'm kind of, um, I'm on the same path as you are. I'm not a big fan of swapping out, you know, chicken for station or the, some of the burgers out there. Um, I'm not a great fan of them either because they are highly processed. Um, and sometimes some of those meats are not nearly as nutrient dense as something that's an animal product and even could be worse for you. So I would say if you're not a big fan of them, I would say try to recreate whatever that is using more of a whole food product like a like uh, you can make lentil burgers instead of the other the type of burger that you may be getting or you can make you know vegan um meatballs using your lentil burgers are so good dude i mean your lentil burgers are <laughs> next you. level when you say that out loud and people are like lentil's not a burger but if you do oh. it with the right ingredient that's why i love having you on because you actually have a resource for people to go to and and access um, I the think information. you're talking about you're talking about the lentil burger on my website, right? They yes. are so good, and you know what, Steve? They're not they're not quote unquote a burger, but if you put it in a bun, you put all the fixing on, and you have that mm-hmm. kind of meaty texture, and you you're getting that fix. A lot of times, it's often what we're so accustomed to having. There's lots of vegan or vegetarian swaps, like like vegan lasagna. Joe, you make a great lasagna that has very little meat in it. That has Thank very, you. very little meat in it. And you it's just about um, taking the foods that you love and swapping them out, swapping the meats out of it. I mean, the easiest trick in the book and, and actually a lifesaver for any bakers out there. But what happens if you're baking cookies or you're baking bread and, and all of a sudden, like, oh, my God, you open the refrigerator and there's no egg. The easiest and cheapest substitute for an egg is a flax egg. And all it is is a teaspoon of flaxseed and two teaspoons of water, and you let that kind of gel up for about two to four minutes, and there you go. You have your binding agent right there, and it's it's half the price of an egg. There is your hack. There's your tip. Okay, Um, I want to just reference the lasagna that you just pointed out. I made eight two-portion lasagnas with one pound of ground beef. Everything mm-hmm. else was veg, but it tasted like meat. And that's the but, thing. And, and Steve, that's if you're, you tell your wife, like maybe there's an opportunity to have that little bit to, to and then crowd out with the veg, which is an Alyssa Bowman trick for sure. I've only got a minute to go here, Liz, and I want you to explain A to B and helping people with their skin a little bit. Oh, right off. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have a brand new online nutrition course called the A to B Foundation. And it basically takes your nutrition to the next level. Um, when your nutrition is all is in alignment, everything else in your life becomes in alignment. So your skin starts to look great. You have more energy. If weight is a thing, you start losing weight or you're able to manage your weight. Um, and I've noticed my clients are seeing massive results. They're doing it on their time online. And it's basically you have me as your nutritionist in your back pocket really giving you the healthy habits and healthy tips that you need to keep going and keep yourself motivated because it's about getting momentum. The more you eat well, the more you feel good, the more you want to eat well.